Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rubenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. Can you create a post-growth economy with our guest, Professor Tim Jackson, director of the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity. What will we cover? What is post-growth? What is successful economy? How to measure success? Post-growth or life after capitalism. Capitalism is broken. The relentless pursuit of more has delivered climate catastrophe, social inequality, and financial instability and left us ill-prepared for life in a global pandemic. Weaving together philosophical reflection, economic insight, and social vision, Tim Jackson's passionate and provocative book dares us to imagine a world beyond capitalism, a place where relationship and meaning take precedence over profits and power. Post-growth is both a manifesto for a system change and an invitation to rekindle a deeper conversation about the nature of the human condition. This is Radical Truth. So we're incredibly lucky today because we have uh, Professor Tim Jackson, uh, a superstar in the post-growth movement. He's director of the Center for Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey. His previous book, Prosperity Without Growth, was named Financial Times Book of the Year and Unheard's Economic Book of the Decade. Uh, his new book, Post Growth, which he kindly sent me a copy and, and, and I've been reading. My wife is very jealous because I still haven't read her books and I'm reading your book. Um, uh, so, 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 Tim, just for those who live on a far another planet and never heard of you, and don't know who you are. Just briefly, if you can share some background, and also, what is post-growth? Mm, yeah, well, um, I'm, uh, I, I think I describe myself as an accidental economist. I didn't train as an economist, actually. Formally, I did maths at Cambridge and a philosophy degree in, in Canada, and then I did a PhD in Scotland, and at the end of the das- that, I ran away as fast as I could from academia, never expecting to go back. And, um, an interesting thing happened in on in April um, 1986. Um, the number four reactor in Chernobyl melted down, and it sort of galvanised me. It made, made me kind of realise a lot of the training that I had, and indeed some of my colleagues were going into the nuclear industry was was not necessarily appropriate to the challenges the world was facing. And so I, the next day, literally almost, I walked into the offices of Greenpeace London and said, "Look." I don't know if you can do anything with me. I'm a physicist. I've got this sort of expertise and I want to work for a different kind of world and better, better technologies. And can you, can you employ me in some, or, you know, even use my talents in some way, I'll do it for free, which I did to start with. And, and it was very interesting 
point in time, because really from that moment, they set me on this task of looking at the economics of renewable energy, of, of solar and wind and so on. And, and it's almost like the world hasn't let me go since then. I have been, I have become an accidental economist and, um, and I've, I've been working on, on the economic, economics of environmental problems ever since and found myself fascinated really by this question of, um, of, of economic growth because it became very clear to me that all the policies government were being driven by by economic growth and all of the solutions that we knew we could implement were not happening because of the potential impact they might have on economic growth and so on and so forth and so and so I became sort of fascinated by the idea that maybe there was a way of thinking about economics after economic growth and and that this sort of assumption that our economies had to go on getting bigger and bigger all the time uh, was one that we could afford to let go of. And, uh, and then I was appointed as um, economics commissioner to the UK Sustainable Development Commission, which was reporting directly to the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, at that time. And and um, we sat down in the commission and, and talked about, you know, what was the major economic challenge associated with, with sustainability in the environment and decided that that's what we would focus on, this this conflict. You've got a finite planet. It doesn't go on getting any bigger. We don't get any more resources each year. We do have a lot of energy coming in from the sun, of course, which we have to use very carefully. But we share that with all the other species on the planet. And, 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 that, and those limits really define what it's possible to do within the economy that, that um, provides for our, our well-being, our quality of life, our, our needs, our nutrition, our shelter, um, and yet the economic model that we live under is one in which we, we expect confidently or less confidently more recently that the economy will just go on getting bigger and bigger. And to me, actually, even to almost anyone who thinks of it, unless they're an economist or a politician, that idea of a kind of expanding, ever-expanding economy doesn't really fit into the concept of a finite planet with ecological limits and so i was i've always been and increasingly i think uh, fascinated by that that sort of dilemma what i call the dilemma of growth and uh, and that, that's been the subject of my work for about 15 years um before i i start um the conversation i wanted to because you you seem to be quite a fan of Bobby Kennedy, uh, or at least you were impressed with his speech at Kansas. So I'd like to play, if it's okay with you, the speech that he made. I mean, it's not a video, it's just audio. Um, uh, because I, I was also quite impressed uh, with what he said. So let me just share the screen here. And Too much and for too long. We seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community value in the mere accumulation of material things. Our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year. But that gross national product, if we judge the United States of America by that, that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and endless to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwood and the laws of our natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm 
and it counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our city. It counts Whitman's rifles and sex knives and the television programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are Americans. Um, so I, I would imagine that's in line with what you're thinking. But what do you say to people? Listen, we got kids being born, population is growing, kids coming out of school. Unless the economy grows, how are we supposed to create jobs for these people? Yeah, I, I love that speech. I mean, that speech was kind of inspirational to me uh, in all sorts of ways, and and it's had a it's had an interesting legacy in a way because because one of the things that Kennedy was talking about there was the measure itself, and he was just pointing out something pretty obvious that that measure has has all sorts of flaws. It's it's just not a very good measure of our well being because it doesn't. It doesn't count all the things that we use up in order to deliver that well-being, and and it doesn't ca- count the 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 all of the good things we bring to the economy that are outside the economy either, like the care that we put and the love we put into looking after those children and and elderly members of the family and volunteering in the community. So it's not it's just not a very good measure of that well-being. That's one of the things he was saying, but I think he was also saying something more profound. Um, because he was holding out the idea of a society uh, in which the, the values of, of, of decency and collaboration and cohesion and solidarity uh, tend to go missing, particularly when what you're counting is the, the sort of busyness of the economy, which is really what the GNP or the GDP counts. And, and, and that's a very basic point. And, and, you know, you're right, of course, to highlight the idea that there are some people who don't have enough already, and I, I think that's a very important starting point. That that the messages about post growth are primarily messages for the most advanced economies who, who who have already overcome many of the development challenges. And and when you look at the statistics on that, it becomes very clear that that you know in the poorest countries in the world, if you increase people's income that increases their life chances, it increases their life expectancy, it, it decreases child mortality and, and, and maternal morbidity and it increases participation in education as you go from having nothing to having, actually it turns out to be quite a precise figure around about fifteen twenty thousand dollars $20,000 per capita, it turns out that you can improve all of those life chances for that expanding population um, with, with an increase in income. And then a very strange thing happens, which is essentially that 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 curve bends downwards and and flattens out and sometimes even goes into reverse. So you can find that countries with very high levels of income have lower life expectancy uh, than countries like 
Cuba, Costa Rica, um, countries in Latin and Latin America particularly tend to do well on life expectancy. Countries in the former Eastern Europe do better than the advanced economies when it comes to questions of education. So there's a you know there's a paradox there that after a certain point that growth stops benefiting our well-being in the way that we would expect it to. And of course, we have to factor in the possibility that uh, there will be a bigger population and the UN projections do suggest that we're moving towards that bigger population. But as big a factor in the impact that we have on planet is the level of affluence and material consumption that that population aspires to. So this post-growth dialogue doesn't rule out the possibility that you have some growth in some parts of the world, but it suggests that the model of growth, the pursuit of of, of social progress that we hold dear in the West is actually after a certain point not taking us in the right direction and may even be taking us backwards. Um, I would imagine when you first started writing about this, uh, it didn't torpedo your career. It says, whoa, we got to get this guy working for us and and uh, at BlackRock and Blackstone and Goldman Sachs and, and all these other institutions that you, what you're talking about would influence them. So I would imagine you were a pretty lonely camper when you first talked about this or, or were you well received? Well, it's, let me tell you, because it is quite a strange sort of experience, really, in a way. On the, on the Friday evening before we launched that report, that, pro, that Prosperity Without Grace, the, the earlier report that I did at the Sustainable Development Commission, I, I, got a, I got a phone call. I was on my way home. I remember it very clearly, and it was kind of misty gray evening. And I thought, I thought I'd done all the work. We'd done all the press preparation. We'd put out the briefing. We had some interviews lined up over the weekend and into the next week when the report was launching. And I got this report, I got this telephone call from what I can only describe as a very irate government official <laughs> who told me in no uncertain terms that number 10 in a certain street in London had gone ballistic because they had suddenly clicked that, uh, you know, one of their advisory groups was beginning to question the idea of economic growth. And they were doing it, interestingly, you know, paradoxically, maybe fatefully, perhaps, in, at the, in exactly the same week that uh, the UK had invited the G7 leaders to London to talk about kick-starting growth in the wake of the financial crisis. So it was really, really bad timing. And I personally, you know, after that phone call, I thought, yeah, I have torpedoed my career, but not quite in the way that you're suggesting. <laughs> it didn't take off like a rocket. It was, you know, I was about to, to make myself persona non grata in the in the presence of the UK government as a government advisor, possibly as an academic. Um, and so, yeah, that sense of, of, of being a kind of lone voice was there. But then, and it was only a matter of a few weeks, I think, two to three weeks, perhaps, a very, very strange thing happened, which was that I began to realise that, that in sticking my head above the parapet in this way, I was speaking to an audience that I had never guessed existed or still existed and and it, and it ranged from you know octogenarians who had been a part of the limits to growth debate back in the 1970s to new kids who wanted a different kind of economics and were desperate to think about these issues to just ordinary people in 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 community halls and and village centers and theaters to and here in a way was the most interesting bit and most unexpected to me 
was people in the investment community, people in the financial sector, people mm. kind of looking in the aftermath of the financial crisis and saying, we did something wrong there, guys. We do need to think a little bit about this, this, this economy and the direction of travel of this economy. And that has huge implications for our business, for what we're doing. So maybe this Tim Jackson guy, maybe he would be an interesting, I don't know, you know, maybe I was just a court jester. Maybe I was just invited in as a kind of form of entertainment or, or even, you know, ticking the moral box. Yeah, we spoke to Tim. We know, we know all about this post-growth stuff. Now let's grow as fast as possible. Um, but it was, it has led over the intervening decade or so to some really fascinating conversations. And, and I would say now uh, I'm definitely not alone. Do, do you think that um, uh, like Viktor Orban in Hungary or Donald Trump in the U.S., I'm not saying that they were brilliant geniuses pushing post-growth, but they were also tying into a dissatisfaction with the status quo. Uh, not that they've come up with a solution that, you know, benefits everyone uh, having an economy that, uh, supports well-being. Um, do you think that's the downside of the dissatisfaction with, hey, this economy is not working for me. You know, I'm a 23-year-old, 27-year-old. I got to live with my parents. I can't even afford to rent an apartment, you know, in Amsterdam or London or things like that. Do you see that or or is it um, not re not related no, I think it's absolutely related, Robert. I think it's absolutely integral to to what's going on. And as I see it, there are kind of two different kinds of that dissatisfaction. One of them is the dissatisfaction of people who have just been left behind mm. and of a divided society. And I think that was, you know, th that was a consequence of decisions that were made by governments before the financial crisis, in, for some decades before the financial crisis, and, and partly because they were so insistent on the pursuit of growth and they thought that, you know, when productivity growth began to slow down, they could stimulate it by flushing the economy with, with as much money as possible. And, and then actually that money becoming a way of, of creating the kind of gambling casino that turned into the financial crash in 2008. And, and both in that process, which was making some people very rich, but leaving the, ord the wages of ordinary people stagnating or even falling. And then in the aftermath of the financial crisis, when we when governments made the decision to pay for the bailing out of banks by imposing austerity, there was another almost a decade of pushing the ordinary people into the background. Of course, you know, they weren't just um, dissatisfied. They were quite rightly, in some cases, you know, very, very angry. And, and I tell some of the stories of that anger in in post-growth. And, and th that few, so it's not, it's not one accidental incident like, the financial crisis or the pandemic, and it's not one accidental property of growth. It, it was actually the way in which advanced economies in particular decided to pursue that growth path to the detriment of, of ordinary people's livelihoods and indeed to the detriment of, of, of the environment and of the planet that we live on. And, and so that is a very legitimate point to take absolutely seriously. We have to take that point seriously because an economy has to work for everybody it can't the idea of trickle down which you know which was the heyday in the 1960s 70s as long as the rich get richer it'll be fine because their wealth will trickle down to the poor we did the opposite you know wealth trickled up from the 1980s onwards 
and and that the idea of trickle down itself is is moribund it's bankrupt literally almost and then i just wanted to say you know it's another sort of more fundamental dissatisfaction and it goes right back to uh kennedy's comment you know that that wealth that measure of wealth that measure of income it measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile and i think increasingly in a consumer oriented society the values that lie outside consumerism outside materialism the values of of solidarity and friendship and love and community these things have become eroded and and that's a you know that's a long lingering dissatisfaction as well that somehow the economy is not delivering what it means to be well as a as a human being and it's not focusing on what human progress could actually mean in terms of the development of the human potential the strengthening of the human spirit and and the collaboration and collegiality between people um that makes our lives worthwhile before i get we get to the the, the measurement issue which you're talking about we had the financial crisis which always struck me that what happened was the banks came to your house they burnt it down but they say don't worry tim we're going to lend you money to build up again and you said oh good thanks a lot that's really cool so the government borrowed money which you have to pay back where is the moral outrage yeah that's a really good yeah. question i mean i think the only way to really get moral outrage is to raise the vat on a football match there will be moral outrage for that but for here i didn't see really you know this massive you know anger there was there was a movement i think i think robert you know that the los indignados in uh, spain for example and uh, the occupy movement on wall street this uh, and you may say well that's that was that was a form of outrage but it didn't last very long and i think you'd be right um but but it, it was it was expressed and and then i think I, i'm not sure i don't know the answer to that question you know i kind of i raise this with my students sometime because i think you know the conditions under which their students are so so far away from the conditions under which i was students yeah. and which education was seen as as a kind of right and 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 a public good and was supported as a public good and now students are encouraged to see their education as a kind of you know a, a, an investment with a return in the future which they will pay be paid back for and that's why they have pay for it now and i've watched generation of students who 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 suffered from this ethos actually becoming demoralized um uh l- losing their confidence in the education system itself and and even treating their education in a different way in a very instrumental way rather than the way of sort of expanding their horizons or becoming better people you know education is about the return you can get on it later in life in a particular profession and and many young people now are sort of saying well uh no no i don't I, you know i forget it i don't want that education i don't want to pay this money for something which may not even give me a better job or a mm-hmm. better income in the future you know that's that's not that's no game that i i want to play and are becoming very disillusioned with that education and i think that's a dangerous situation for a nation to be in when uh you know when its own uh human capital as it's sometimes called um is is abandoning the task of investing in itself so but but i don't know where the i don't know why that outrage isn't there i mean to some extent it's because it's a very very difficult world for young people 
and they see those conditions as having been imposed on them with without very much agency for change and occasionally it will it will erupt and i think we saw some outrage for example through the school strikes in 2019 we've seen some outrage in extinction rebellion also on the streets but it it it, it is a sort of a puzzle why it isn't why there isn't more of it and I think, you know, maybe it is just the conditions of life have become so difficult that everybody's concentrating on getting from this end of the day to the to, to tomorrow or this end of the week to next week. And and uh, in the meantime, you know, we'd like to be as comfortable as possible, of course. Um, but I do think there's a role for that. You know, and I talk about that in post-growth towards the end when I talk about the, this, this idea of civil disobedience that has been implicit in political theory right the way back from the 15th 16th century the idea that that it's quite legitimate for for civilians when government no longer represents their interests to express their uh dissatisfaction with that in forms of civil disobedience and all of the you know the rights campaigns for example of the 60s and 70s drew on that legitimacy to create um the the civil rights movement the 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 women's rights movement the the sexuality gender rights movements uh the the and 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 i think in a sense you know that's the kind of civil disobedience that we would need to see to create the change that that's now necessary well i believe it or not i think about it was about 15 years ago 16 years ago or more uh, i was teaching mba students at a ranked MBA school at Erasmus University, and uh, for over four year period, I was very disillusioned that this there was subject was sustainable finance, but we were the beekeeping course, we were the elective that okay, you can it's not really that important, and nearly none, I think except for two, actually followed their heart. Most of them were just looking, how can I cut ahead of the line? How can I get there? Uh, without having to do the work to basically build my network and and get a, a good job, and the only thing they were worried about are about repaying their student loans. And, mm-hmm. and I said to them, "You want to change business? Refuse to work for companies that don't align with your values. You have leverage then when they come to interview you. They want you. If you if enough people say we don't want to work for you, we don't care about the red BMW." But I was very dis, disheartened that so few. You know, uh, they did pretty much what you were what you were saying is, you know, let's let's see if we can die rich as quickly as possible. And And I I think uh, now maybe now the students are actually uh, more serious, but feel less hopeful. I think I think it's coming back that sense, you know, that it certainly went away for a period and I think it's coming back. I do. And I do see it. I do see actually companies, companies that I speak to and work with who are concerned about, you know, the quality of graduates they can attract. And they can only attract those good graduates, or good students, not even graduates sometimes, but those good young people, if they espouse values that those young people also uh, adhere to. And so there is a sense, I think, in which they, they do have traction um, as employees to create companies that are companies working for the good. And, and that's, a, that's a really interesting um it's a really interesting dynamic that I think is emerging uh, more recently. What what does a post growth world in measurement wise? What are would you 
if you you know you had your magic wand okay we're not using gdp anymore because we could have a nuclear disaster and massive gdp growth because we got to rebuild and whatever so what is the measurement system that you're proposing to actually create an economy based i mean that was actually our focus our our mission was create an economy based on well-being by changing the financial system so what does it look like what it, what would you measure and how do you get buy in from people who's are hired and fired only on a benchmark yeah i i kind of i'll come back come to that second point because it's something that i wanted to to raise in relation to the first point it, the, the, this idea that somehow we have instilled those values like those competitive values let you know let me get rich quick and forget everything else and live my life as enjoyably as possible we have instilled those lessons those values into society systematically and particularly since the second world war in part in order to create the demand that a growth-based economy needs so we you know there's no doubt at all that that the way that society works is to kind of you know it has a feedback mechanism through which it's outward goals the things that it's hoping to increase and measure in order to increase as much as possible feedback into the set of institutions that then shape our lives and and that shaping of our lives shifts our values when you look at the psychological evidence you see you know you see very clearly actually that humans have selfish values as you know we're not all angels mm-hmm. um but they those psychological values also include altruistic values in almost every human being um, and they vary in strength of course and and similarly the, the, our desire for sort of novelty for this kind of hedonistic ever moving fast moving society of innovation is balanced with values which psycholog- psychologists identify that that are around the value of, of conservation and tradition and what we've done in the society in a sense is to just stimulate those novelty seeking selfish hedonists because they are perfect for buying stuff and keeping the economy going and in the process neglected these these other values um you know that that exist in the human psyche and that matter for the solidarity of our society and that matter for our well-being broadly understood so when when you come to the you know when you come to to the question of what you measure what you measure really really matters it doesn't just matter because you may or may not hit that indicator it matters because what you measure determines what you f- what you focus on what you focus on determines how you build your institutions and and your and your laws and your regulations how you build your laws and regulations becomes an incentive for how people behave and how people behave then becomes shifted towards those values that you are measuring so you measure profit comp- competition output productivity growth and surprise surprise you get productivity growth oriented people who don't care about the, their neighbors so so what do you measure instead i mean i think one of one of the lessons there is you can't just measure one thing and and although you know politicians will say they don't measure one thing there's always one you know it is gdp basically that trumps all the other measurements um and 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 it doesn't make any sense because uh, you know for example if you're driving a, a car you don't just look at the rev counter for example to figure out where you are which direction you're traveling how the engine's working what speed you're going what the speed limit is you have to be looking in different directions and an economy is much 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 more complicated than a car so you cannot hope to drive it properly by focusing just on the this output growth measure um and 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 
the the other thing to say you know from there is that that within what you might call a you know a dashboard of measures that uh that would give you a better indication of how that vehicle is traveling along that track and whether it's going to take you where you want to go you, you are the things that really matter what are the things that matter can you measure people's well-being well it turns out you can can you measure different components of well-being can you measure things like collegiality or loneliness in society it turns out you can can you measure the mental health of your children you absolutely can and so by putting those measures into your um governance system and and taking them seriously I think that is that is the, the the challenge that this idea of a different kind of economy, and indeed the challenge that Robert Kennedy was posing back in the back in 1968. It's it's um it's a system. It's an idea that is gradually being taken up. There's a very good example of it in New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, the, the living indicators framework, living standards framework, and the well-being indicators. And what's interesting about that is this system of indicators lives inside Treasury. You know, we, we have indicators in the UK as well, but they're hidden inside the Office for National Statistics and nobody really pays them much attention. Put those indicators in Treasury and Treasury's job actually is to allocate resources in a way that the indicators that matter most are the ones that you're making progress in. Is the well-being of our society increasing or decreasing in different components in our sense of community, in our mental health, in our in our diets uh, and 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 creating a framework that will allow government to do its job properly. But um, if I use uh, the financial, uh, the present new financial GDP of ESG, now the flavor of the month, but it's become a death march in the wrong direction, but slower. And it hasn't done anything to address the issues that it was set up for, climate, carbon, gender, poverty, agriculture, food security, but we claim $40 trillion are going into it, so <laughs> where's the meat? Where's, where's the success? Um, it's made fees for the fund managers and the research providers, but society has not really benefited. There's, seem, there's finally now some pushback on that side, but as long as the financial professionals are incentivized for this short-term behavior, it's going to be hard to get them interested in focusing on an economy to create well-being. Yeah, I agree. What's the the plan? What's the, you know, Tim Jackson's 10 things we got to do? Well, you know, I think, I think, Robert, you still have to kind of at least accept that, you know, for all, I mean, first of all, I would say ESG is a good thing. And the idea that, that there's something called sustainable or socially responsible investment um, is something that wasn't there, you know, a decade or so yeah, ago. It has right. grown over that period and it is integrating environmental, social and governance goals into the way that investments are made. That, that I think is, you know, you have to support that as an initiative and something that it, that is bringing the conversation in the right direction. But you're right, it's not bringing it fast enough and it hasn't made the changes fast enough. And I think when you look at the conditions under which the capital markets operate generally, you could, you could sort of predict that because although, because ESG is broadly driven by, um, um, not not entirely philanthropic interests, but by well-meaning institutions, by well-meaning investment companies, by people who want to do right, and and the distance between that and where the market itself is has until recently been huge. 
Now, I think to some extent, climate change is changing that because mm. of, of things like the task force for the um, climate-related financial disclosures and because of science-based targets to meet net zero and because of the impetus on, on financial institutions to create plans that would show that their portfolios actually are consistent with a 1.5 degree world. You know, those are pressures which have emerged within the last five years at the most since Paris, I suppose, in, in 2015, so six years. And, and they are really important pressures. My, my hope is that those pressures will not just in a not just in a sort of voluntarist way, you know, you're doing this because you want to be good, but you're doing it because this is how the market operates, that that will be supported by government. So the idea of actually mandating a financial financial markets in ways which will reward the people who are doing good rather than penalize them and penalize the people who refuse to do good rather than rewarding them. That is a critical part of the architecture. And we can't expect to change the system without changing the system. And so that does require, you know, it requires movement, obviously, from within the investment community, perhaps even lobbying government to make those changes. And I know that some investment companies, managers are doing that sort of lobbying, um, because if you are an investment company that wants to do good, you do not want to be penalized amongst your peers by uh, capital market structure and legislation and regulations that allow uh, greed to dominate over the, the the proper uses, I would say, the, the real uses of, of investment, the social purpose, the social license of investment, which is being eroded by the failure of regulation to, to stop bad practice. Do, do you think now that uh, everyone has realized that government has all the money that it ever needs, because we always say we have no money, but when a crisis comes along, all of a sudden we've got all this cash, uh, particularly with interest rates so low. Um, we, we should we should definitely have really realized that now. We should also, and this is another thing I think we should be outraged about, is how that was denied for so long yeah. by mainstream politicians. And and they do still try to play that denial game. But you're absolutely right. You know, when when it came to building hospitals overnight and providing furlough salaries for people who couldn't work because of the pandemic when it came to you know supporting nurses and hospitals actually that would not have been possible without exactly that truth that, that you're highlighting that the governments governments are not households they don't have to borrow at commercial no. interest rates from banks no and the and the, and the investment community is very happy to lend to governments like the uk and the netherlands and germany which you know they get they pay negative interest um, so how do we increase the pain because they only seem to respond to pain to get them to one, let's have products reflect their true cost. That might be a good step forward. Why is a bicycle 21% VAT and an airline ticket zero? Uh, maybe that's a first step that government do your job, make policy that will facilitate this, that the, that it makes financial uh, sense. Is Boris opening up the red carpet for you to come advise him on doing this? Um, not not just as as we as we speak, <laughs> but uh, you know there is a, there are some. It, it's a very interesting politics here in the UK. I mean, I have I have spoken, advised. I mean, even that work with the with the with the UK Sustainable Development Commission, although they didn't like that report very much. You know, they were there was a dialogue 
uh, with government and, and working with political parties, I think is 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 incredibly important because you know that vision, the vision shifts and 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 it shifts in ways that are not entirely predictable between left and right leaning government. So this supposedly right leaning government was exactly the one that used the sovereign power of money to to do what was necessary to support livelihoods. It was exactly the one that intervened in supply chains in ways that governments are absolutely not supposed to do according to that right-wing ideology. So there's definitely a kind of shift shift of of mood and shift of the boundaries between the lines between between left and right and 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 i think that's good because i think it needs both left and right to be brought together to address the kinds of challenges that we're looking at now i i might be you know i might be super over optimistic but i do i am still hopeful that when the conference of the parties of the delayed cop 26 meets in glasgow in a couple of months time that there will be some impetus towards that kind of change because I do think, and I think you're absolutely right here, that governments have to be held to account and their responsibilities have to be held clear in relation to some of these issues, climate change, of course, but also actually, you know, an economy that, that works for everyone and that and that's focused on well-being rather than simply productivity. And those conversations are beginning to be open in ways that I would not ever have imagined or anticipated um a decade or so ago 15 years ago maybe okay so so you're seeing some cracks in the wall yeah and um you know interesting conversations that that weren't there before um and and different people who are expressing it you know these ideas particularly uh, a, a younger cohort of economic students who are just dissatisfied with the economics they've had um the 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 school strikes as i mentioned before um people who and actually interestingly one of the things that i'm fascinated by is that the membership of extinction rebellion for example is not a bunch of tree hugging hippies and it's not a bunch of of you know angry radicals it's mostly or at least significantly it's it's ordinary middle class mainly women looking around at their society and saying this is not good enough and and that, that i think is an interesting social phenomenon that that uh, speaks of of uh, the potential for change okay i'm going to start taking some questions aaron wanted to know do we need to create a better way to measure social capital and the effect that it has on the overall global economy and the well-being of our citizens Yes, I think we should do that. I mean, we have started to do that. There are some good measures. I mean, I think, um, you know, the work of Robert Putnam on social capital back in the 1990s was a, was a really good starting point for that. And um, and what I would say, though, is that, you know, while, while some of while we don't have perfect measures for these things because they're not perfectly measurable, um, we should not let that absence of perfection in relation to the measure itself stop mm. us from including questions of social capital and decisions about social capital in our in our in our decisions about governance or regulation, for example. So, so yes, uh, definitely uh, improvements in those measures, but actually bringing those measures forward and getting policymakers and decision makers to to act on the basis of those measures is is as important. Okay. Penny, uh, um, Penny Frogger had a question. Does venture capital in the current form here have a place in a post-growth economy? 
That's that's a, um, another fascinating conversation because I had a, a conversation yesterday with a venture capitalist about that about that very issue, and and actually for um, the best part of a decade, a little bit more, I chaired the advisory board of a Danish venture capital company uh, that was looking was investing in new technologies, and at that point in time, the existence of venture capital to develop those technologies was absolutely vital. I mean, it's it's less vital now. Things have moved on a little bit. We were ahead of the curve actually in that in that experiment. And and the interesting thing about the experiment was um, that over the time that the fund ran, it returned a multiple of about one. Um, which um, to a venture capitalist is not a good multiple to be returning, you know, when you return the value of your, your original fund. I mean, it's better than f- returning nothing from that original fund, but it isn't the way that venture capitalists normally speak about the returns to their funds. So so to me, I, I, I would argue that question is yes, because venture capital is about putting capital at risk in order to create innovation that will benefit people in the future. And, and if you define venture capital in that way, then it's absolutely essential now. Um, as as much as it has ever been and and will continue to be essential if you define venture capital as people who like to make a fast buck as quick as they can and you know devil take the highmost then i think we could do away with venture capital but i have worked with seen and talked to venture capitalists who who are much more of that former persuasion that actually you know you venture capital in order to invest in the future to create a a commitment to a better world in the future and that role is important well, they also over-exaggerate their returns in general. So That's true, of course. They, are, they always used to say 30%, uh, which is very rare. Uh, Thomas, is there something that we can just do simply every day without career moves? What can we, the individual citizen do to move money or power or structures toward a society based on well-being? What are the little... What are the little wins? I don't really, personally, I don't really believe in, put in baseball terms, in home runs and grand slams. Mm. I really believe in, in simple, small wins, but on a continuous basis. What, could, what can the average person who's not Tim Jackson with all of the access that you have and all that, what can they do on a daily basis? I think uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm absolutely agree, agree with you there on the, on the, you know, the, the, the big band silver bullet home run solutions they're very tempting to be persuaded by of course want to solve all those things but actually um you know it's going to be a succession of changes and actually ultimately it's going to be a succession of changes in values as much as behaviors and and in some ways it's about you know not changing values in the sense that you know human beings used to be like that but now they're like this it's more like saying well, actually, we should give more credence to those parts of what it means to be human and give them the space to live and to breathe and, and for us to become more fully human. And I think, you know, that process is therefore one that feels more like liberation than constraint. And, and that's what I, what I tried in a way to sketch out in post-growth was this idea that the world that we're moving towards is a better, richer, more fulfilling place to be, in part because we focus less on materialism and more on the development of our own human potential, both as individuals and as communities and as a society. I believe we are half evolved in terms of our of our potential. And we've got stuck in a kind of adolescence that has fixated itself on comfort, materialism and convenience. And 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 I think I think in a way 
you know, in a way that that the task of getting ourselves unstuck from that is is in part, of course, a social task. It does require that coordination of government, but it's also something you can invest in yourself, and you can invest in it in all sorts of ways. You can invest in by you know developing your own skills in ways which are less materialist. You can develop your own life in ways which are less materialist. You can make choices for um, less carbon intensive diets, for example. You can focus more on your health. You can focus more on your close relationships than your likes on Facebook. Um, <laughs> you, you can you know we these are personal choices, and of course you can also go to your employer and say, where are you investing my pension? because I don't want to be paying my pension contributions into investments in the fossil fuel industries. And those, you know, actually even something as simple as that, that could have a massive effect on where money's going within the financial system. And, and although as an individual, you kind of think, well, I can't make much of a difference because it means everyone doing it. Actually, for everyone to do it, someone has to start. And so, you know, that and that starting point, it does more than just become a component in a huge system that you don't think you have influence on. It becomes the place where you lay down the line and say, this far I will go, this and beyond that I won't. And and my line here is I do not want my pensions invested in things in which I don't believe. And that actually makes you as a person more consistent with the own values, because what you find is that nobody really wants to invest their pensions in things that are uh, destroying the planet. You know, you can't, you couldn't, if you put a survey out tomorrow saying, where would you like to invest your pensions in things that save the planet or in things that destroy the planet? You would not get that many people come back saying, I'd like to invest my pension in things that destroy the planet. So, well, that, you know, there's a, there's a sort of, sorry. Yeah, go no, ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, I'm not quite sure where I was going beyond that, but I guess I'm, I guess I'm saying that, you know, those individuals action, individual actions become important, not just because they are part of a collective change, but because they, they give individuals the power to live in ways that are consistent with their own values. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, TBLIs always focus more on the irresponsible investors and criminals. And, and I always found, you know, if you ask them, do you want a financial return and a social environmental added value? I never had anybody say to me, no, I want all my money to make life miserable for everybody. Exactly. And I'm working at that 24 hours a day. So uh, people don't think like that. Derek had a question. What are your views on consumer needs formation could we rebalance nudge these over time with novel families of financial monetary instruments to help mitigate negative social and environmental externalities in a post-growth economy if yes could you share some examples yeah yeah i think you do i mean i think we have to, again it goes back to a point i think in a way that i made earlier which is that we constructed society we constructed or we we didn't construct the values themselves. What we did was prioritize the values that we felt would be consistent with uh, expanding demand and creating markets. And, and, and that were, they were a set of consumerist values that, were, that you can see around us in the structures that, that we live in. I mean, in my country, we could see it very clearly in, in, the, in the, um, the evolution, for example, of opening hours in shops. And there used to be a time when all the shops were closed on a Wednesday afternoon. And of course, in those days, you shopped in shops rather than online. Um, but there was then there was a sort of systematic erosion and Wednesday afternoon no longer existed. Sunday no longer existed. Um, consumer law and marketing laws changed in order to facilitate an expansion of consumer demand. And, and it, although it seems a little bit difficult to go, you know, to think about going in reverse directions, particularly with the huge import of, of 
kind of online shopping and the con- extraordinary convenience of that. I don't think it's beyond the remit of government to at least make those companies who are engaging in those activities responsible and to hold them to account and perhaps even to hold them financially account to account and then to use those financial means actually to protect the values that we do want to keep in society by building communities, by creating the conditions under which people can uh, lead fulfilling lives in less material intensive ways and actually sometimes even by stopping practices which are you know, I think profoundly wrong, like the, the mass advertising of uh, materialistic and consumer values to our kids from the very youngest age in order to create these future co- consumer markets that we hope will save our economy. So this post-growth world, and I think the question is is absolutely right, has to be one which is which we think about the way that we create those values and we think about the uh, you know, think about that both as government legislation, but also the way in which we build the strength in our communities. I'm very keen on the idea that this transition is not seen, if you like, as, a, as an entirely punitive one, which we are all running around in, in grass shirts with, with, you know, no access to any modern technology. I don't think that's the future that I'm describing, but I, and, and, and the antidote to that is to focus on those things that actually make our lives richer. Those opportunities for kids, for example, to be in nature, there are opportunities for them to build new skills, putting resources into our communities so that community actually means something. There was a very interesting point during the pandemic when, you know, the streets were empty, cars were gone, uh, people weren't so much at work and they, you know, they went out onto the streets. It was almost like they they could reclaim the streets in certain places. Um, And and. When you think about that, you, you and and also how fast it went away, you realise how much is at stake in the way that we design our communities and design the spaces in which we live, and 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 I think all of those opportunities are ways not just of nudging actually, but creating this enormous opportunity for people to live richer lives in less materialistic ways. Is the is the gig economy antithetical to an economy based upon well being? Because that seems to be the the massive explosive growth of um, the gig economy. Recently, the Dutch just uh, passed a law or the a court case that uh, Uber drivers are employees, so they are not independent contractors. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the gig economy troubles me um, because you know, in some ways, it seems to be and and presents itself as kind of offering opportunities for for um income for people who wouldn't otherwise have it and yet when you create a market for for labor that is unregulated and that lies outside um any protection of worker rights then then you have a recipe for disaster and i think that's what people have begun to realize that the exploitation of work through aspects of the gig economy is something that uh is undermining the value of labor it's undermining worker rights and it's creating problems so a lot of people felt as though the gig economy was going to solve all our problems and i think i think that that's turned out to be predictably perhaps it's turned out to be a, a bit of an error because uh, um the the largest new flavor of the month is uh, which has pulled in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds 10-minute bike delivery for a container of milk. And there's like five new companies in the Netherlands that are doing this. And I'm trying to figure out, the store is open until 9 or 10. You know, just 
walk down the street or get on your bike, you know, or if you're too lazy, get on your car. And I get all the, there's lots of cash chasing this. But this is like the, the, the ultimate in stupidity and unnecessary, certainly for an economy based upon well-being. You know, having it in 10 minutes is going to make your life more fulfilling. I, I don't understand that mm. uh, whatsoever. We're coming toward the, the end. Um, what can the people that are listening to this live and those that will f- listen to it tape, because it'll also be on YouTube um, for a while, what can they do to help you? Um, uh, you know, postgres to me, Prosper- Prosperity Without Grace was written for, as, I, as I've said, for, for the UK government. It was a kind of policy document. Um, and, and, and it was full of statistics and arguments and economics and stuff like that. And, and what was really surprising about what followed was actually how it wasn't the statisticians or the policymakers or, or even the economists sometimes who were interested in those arguments. It was ordinary people. And so post-growth, the book that I've just published was actually written much more for those ordinary people. And it's, it's intention really is to create a conversation to create the resources for a conversation and that conversation is a very vivid one is a very real one and it's a very topical one and it's really you know boil it down is how should we live how should we live on a finite planet where um, resources are limited and where um, our choices matter to the quality of our children's lives and and i think that conversation you know it's it's what it's a conversation whose time has come and and so the help for me would be for that conversation to go out to to broaden the horizons yet again when prosperity without growth was published as we were talking about before it came from this you know a lone voice raising your head above the parapet um, and finding that there was an interested audience there my hope for post growth and my ask for people listening would be that that conversation put in waves you know expands again because it is the most important conversation of our time. Thank you to our guest and audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe where you listen to your podcast. This was Radical Truth. Stay safe.